You're listening to a Frequency Podcast Network production. Hi, everyone. Before tonight's episode, I wanted to give you a quick update on the state of the show. Unfortunately, Season 4 of Fireside Canada won't be launching this year. The Frequency Podcast Network already has a full lineup of shows that they're working on, and the talented folks who turn my stories into compelling episodes have their plates full. But we're hoping that, with a little more time, we can have a brand new season ready to go next fall, with much more than the usual 10 episodes and releasing weekly rather than bi-weekly. With that being said, we did want to get at least one episode out there for Halloween. So, as usual, thank you so much for listening. I hope you enjoy tonight's episode, and I'll see you next fall. There's an island off the coast of Newfoundland that is regarded by some to be the most haunted place in Canada. The island is small. You could walk its entire length, about nine and a half kilometers, in a little over two hours. But that limited space between the rugged beaches and towering cliffs is filled with stories of haunted mines, sentient mist, unexplained booming explosions, and strange lights doing battle in the sky. It's a place where little people with withered faces are said to stalk the woods and marshes, where disembodied voices are often heard trying to lure victims into the swamp, and where, on All Souls' Night, some families would leave bread and tea on their doorstep, or even on their kitchen table, to satisfy the ravenous dead. But even on an island teeming with paranormal phenomena, there's one story that stands out above the rest. You're listening to Fireside Canada, my podcast about Canadian legends, lies, and lore. I'm David Williams. Tonight, on this special Halloween episode, a supernatural terror that is said to stalk the swamps of one of Eastern Canada's most infamous islands. Its story is considered by some to be one of the most terrifying in the country because of its connections to actual historic events, because of its visceral, gut-churning descriptions, and because, throughout the years, no less than ten people have come forward with stories of their own harrowing encounter. Once little more than a small-town urban legend, it has become, in recent years, one of the most well-known and one of the most terrifying ghost stories in the country. This is the story of the Swamp Hag of Bell Island. Part 1. The Woman in White On Bell Island, you don't stay out after dark. Everyone knows that. Jeannie kept her head down as she spoke, creeping like a cat along the top of the fence. When she was halfway between the posts, she kicked a leg out behind her and bent her upper body parallel with the fence. The waning sunlight played in her hair. Somewhere up the dead-end lane, a voice announced that it was time to come home. The children ignored the call, deciding instead to take their own tries on the makeshift balance beam, but no one could match Jeannie's grace. 
When it was Andy's turn, he slipped off his shoes, climbed up the post, and curled his toes around the top rail like a jackdaw. Why not? he asked. Why not what? Jeannie said. She had made it to the end of the fence and was now standing in the road, watching him. Andy ventured a look in her direction and nearly fell. Whereas the others had fallen, laughing into the tall grass, he fought hard to stay upright. As a newcomer to the island, he had to prove he could keep up with the others. He kept his eyes on his feet as he rephrased his question. Why don't you stay out after dark? Someone's mother called from a distant backyard, and a few of the younger children began to back away. The others exchanged uncertain glances. After a beat of silence, Jeannie offered an answer that made the other children widen their eyes. Because if you do, she'll get you. Who will? Another long pause. The woman in white. Her voice wavered on the words, lacking the confidence that was present just minutes before. A stiff wind blew Andy off balance and he leapt to the ground. He blushed at his failure, but the others barely noticed. Just the mention of this mysterious woman had put them on edge. Whatever bravery they had shown by ignoring their mother's calls was shrinking with the setting sun. Who's the woman in white? She's a ghost, one boy offered. No, she's not, said an older girl. She's a fairy. If you're out at night, she grabs you and carries you away. Jeannie shook her head. My brother, she began, her voice almost a whisper, says that the woman in white carries a long knife and an axe, and if she catches you, she'll chop off your head. Andy studied her face and smiled. You're joking. An older boy about 14 years old came sauntering up the road, his head a mop of sandy blonde hair, his eyes the same color as Jeannie's. His long shadow stretched across the road and slanted into the coolness of the marsh. The children parted around him like water. Come on, he said to his sister. It's time to go home. The woman in white is out tonight. There was a moment of chilled silence. The faces of the younger children turned white, and they wordlessly ran home to the safety of their mother's kitchens. Jeannie turned to Andy and smiled. Told you so. Hurry and get inside, or... She stuck out her tongue and made a gurgling sound while drawing the back of her thumb across her throat. She laughed again, then turned and ran up the road. At supper, Andy thought about mentioning the woman in white to his parents, but decided against it. As the son of a mining engineer, he'd spent his entire childhood moving from one place to the next, and he was used to hearing these kinds of local folktales. The woman in white, he surmised, was simply another story meant to test the new kid, and he knew what he had to do. Andy rushed through his meal as quickly as he could without attracting his parents' suspicion, commenting here and there about how he felt tired and hoped to go to bed early. When he finished, he asked to be excused, cleared his plate, retired to his bedroom, and waited. Soon, he heard his father's footsteps in the hallway, followed by the sound of his office door clicking shut. Then, the muffled sounds of the CBC echoed from the front room, signaling his mother had begun her quilting. Andy pulled on a sweater, grabbed his flashlight, carefully slid open his window, and slipped outside into the cool night air. 
He flattened himself against the side of the house and crept below the office window, watching the slow movement of his father's shadow framed in a golden square of light that fell at his feet. He straightened when he reached the end of the yard and headed in the direction of Jeannie's house. She and the others had tried to scare him with their talk of the woman in white. He would prove to her that he wasn't afraid. The darkness that night was overbearing. The beam of his flashlight seeped into the wet cloth of fog blanketing the island and diffused into a pallid yellow ring. And the moon was of little help, just a pale streak smeared behind scattered clouds. The sharp scent of burning pine and cedar drifted on the wind, making the air taste of October smoke and salt. Wabana was a small community. You could walk from one end of town to the other in a matter of minutes, and it wasn't long before Andy was standing on the empty corner next to Jeannie's house. He clicked off his flashlight. The strident fuzz of a radio show droned through the walls, and in the slit between the curtains of the front room window, he saw Jeannie curled up on a chartreuse couch with her legs folded beneath her. His knock at the window made her jump, but her fright turned to annoyance when she recognized the new kid beaming at her from behind the glass. He grinned. Jeannie moved cautiously to the window and pulled aside the curtain. The bright light that poured from the room made Andy wince, and when his vision recovered, he saw that Jeannie was now backing away, her once bemused expression now fearful. Her eyes, wide with terror, were fixed on something behind him. Before he could say anything, she rushed forward and slammed the curtains shut. The window went dark, revealing in its reflection the vision that had made her flee, and that made his gut turn cold. Up the street, where there had only been darkness before, stood a pale figure in profile. Its flowing white hair and ankle-length gown fluttered in the wind. Then its head began to turn, and Andy wheeled around to see the woman in white staring at him, holding him in her gaze. The errant clouds parted, the moonlight fell in frosty ribbons across the street and made her garments shimmer. She raised a slow, slender arm and began to walk in his direction. Andy felt his knees buckling as he backed away. The flashlight slipped from his trembling fingers and clattered somewhere in the shadows. He felt the cool hardness of the window press against his back, and he ran. Across the lawn, through the bushes, back down that lonely road, Andy ran as fast as he could, stumbling on the unseen rocks and divots that littered his path, but always moving forward and never, ever looking back. Barreling into the darkness, he could sense her chasing behind him, fingers stretching for his neck, the sharpened axe blade ready to slice through his calves or sink into his shoulder. It was only when he reached the light of his father's office window that he risked a glance backward and felt her presence melt away. Shivering and panting in the shadow of the house, he saw that the street was empty. There was no sound aside from his own labored breathing and the wind in the grass. Andy clambered back into his room and spent the next half hour watching his window from the safety of his bed. It was locked and curtained, of course, but he could still see gaps between the window dressing, 
and every bend of a branch, every shift of a shadow sent a jolt of fear through his body until adrenaline was replaced by exhaustion. Just as his eyes were beginning to close, he thought he saw the white form of a woman glide down the street past his window. And he knew that she was still searching for the child who was foolish enough to ignore common knowledge and venture out after dark. Robert waited until the kid had run out of sight before he approached the house. He didn't know the boy's name, but recognized him as the son of the mine's new engineer. He imagined he just gave him one hell of an introduction to Bell Island. Still, he had to be careful of these newcomers. They could be unpredictable. He was less worried about Janie. She was a local. Like Robert, she had grown up on the island hearing the same stories and seeing the same sights. He knew she would be too frightened to leave her bedroom. He reached the front window, bent down and ran his hand along the grass, instinctively holding up the hem of his dress to keep it from dragging. He felt something hard and heavy, and he rolled it into his palm. The kid's flashlight. Robert had barely kept in his laughter when he saw him bolt. He almost felt guilty. But it was a thrill to cause such a stir and escape unidentified, to frighten others and hear the gossip the next day about ghosts and fairies, while the skeptics wondered aloud about the culprit behind the prank. Robert also saw his evening theatrics as a sort of service for the community. Bell Island could be a dangerous place. The marshes were deceptively deep. The cliffs were high and sheer. There was a reason the older folks told tales about will-o'-the-wisps luring people to a cold, wet, and untimely death in the wetlands. And parents still told stories about fairies, ghosts, and Bell Island boogeymen. Even without the fog that so often crept in after sunset, it was far too easy for anyone, especially a child, to lose their way and not see a swamp or, God forbid, the edge of a cliff before it was too late. Over the years, more than a few islanders had been forced to spend the night outside at the mercy of the elements. Others had disappeared, swallowed by the sea. So he played his part. When the mood struck him, often in the fall, he would dig out his old mummer's costume, don the white hood and gown, walk about town after sunset, and bring a legend to life. With every sighting, the legend grew and he took a strange sort of pride, imagining how the kids who had seen him would breathlessly inform their friends the next day about their narrow escape from the woman in white. He gleefully imagined the boy waking up the next day and finding his flashlight on his front porch. Wabana was a small town. Robert knew where he lived. He would take his time, let the kid get home safely, make sure no alarm was sounded, and then wander over to his house and return the lost item. That was certain to leave a lasting impression. The kid lived in Dobbin's Garden, an area composed mostly of a jumble of houses backing onto farmland that was bordered by a swamp. All of their windows were dark and the way was clear, but something made him pause as he approached the boy's home. A faint smell of rot, sharp and stinging, wafted from the mire. He looked toward the source and saw a woman standing amongst the reeds and rotting wood. 
He did his best to look menacing. He took long, even, practiced steps to make it appear as if he were floating. He walked diagonally into the wind and toward her, ensuring that the gown billowed around him. And he raised his arms as if he were reaching out for her, the way that the ghosts and vampires did in all those stories he had read. She remained perfectly still, head down, shoulders hunched, and though he couldn't see her face, he felt her eyes upon him. Somewhere between the street and the swamp, his curiosity turned to compulsion. His steps were automatic as he drifted toward her. The putrid scent became stronger, and he was terrified. When he came within twenty paces, he turned on the flashlight and sighed with relief. She looked like a normal young woman, nineteen, twenty years old. Her eyes were red and wet with tears. She held her hands to her face, and he could hear her sobbing behind her thin fingers. Her cream-colored cloak and dress were rimmed with mud. She had been out there a while. He stepped closer. Are you okay? he asked. Are you lost? I screamed, she said, her voice almost a whisper. I screamed as loud as I could, but no one came. She raised her head and his flashlight's beam began to flicker and fade. Her eyes flashed a sickly yellow in the dying light. The air grew cold and thick, and the smell became overpowering. It pushed into his nose and eyes, slithered down his throat, flooded and burned his lungs. He fell to the ground, weak, confused, and frightened. He watched, paralyzed in terror, as she began to rot before his eyes. Her cream dress unraveled into tattered rags the color of the swamp. Her hair sagged in lumpy, wet streaks of mud and filth. Her smooth skin turned a pallid, patchy gray and began to slip from her body in pieces, exposing white bone and brown mud. No one helped me, and no one will help you. Her voice was the wind in the grass. She lurched forward, dropped to all fours, and scuttled to his side. The shattered ends of her knees and elbows dug into his sides as she climbed onto his body and she pressed a wet hand across his mouth, spattering morsels of soil and skin and mud across his face. Her wagging tongue was a clump of wet, black leaves. Her yellow nails dug into the tender flesh below his eyes, and she hissed through jagged brown teeth. Taste what I tasted, smell what I smelled. He felt the wet earth rise up around him. The bilious scent of death and decay washed over him as she bent her peeling mouth to his. Robert squeezed his eyes shut and said a prayer. Moments later, he felt the weight lift from his chest, and she was gone, though the smell still lingered. He rolled over and crawled on his belly out of the impression he had left in the swamp, then struggled to his feet and ran. He wanted to get far away from that place, away from that thing that had held him down. Her smell clung to his clothes and hair and coated his tongue. His burning lungs urged him to stop. Wet, heaving coughs punctuated his panicked gasp for air, but just as he slowed, he heard a crash in the tall grass to his right, and the smell of decay again filled the air. 
He turned to see the creature bounding through the trees like a rabid dog locked on its prey. He pushed even harder through the fog that swirled all around him, and just when he felt he was about to collapse, he saw a faint light twinkling in the distance. A house, he thought. He was saved. He screamed for help, but no one heard him. Even as he stumbled, as he fell forward and failed to meet the ground, and he heard the sea surge beneath him, his terrified mind struggled to realize that the light he had seen was not a house, but a ship, and that the sound of the ocean crashing against the rocks below had been drowned out by his own desperate breathing. The flashlight never made it to Andy's doorstep, and the woman in white was never seen again. But the story is still told. Because the marshes are deceptively deep, because the cliffs are high and sheer, and because, on Bell Island, you don't stay out after dark. Everyone knows that. Part 2. Marshes, Murder, and Mythmaking Belle Island, Newfoundland, is an interesting place. Hewn from stacks of shale and sandstone, it stands over 100 feet above the surface of Conception Bay, where the constant ebb and flow of the surging Atlantic has carved a natural cathedral of cliffs, caves, and arches, rimmed with white foam and crowned with short, weather-beaten trees, grass, rock, and the tangled nests of seabirds. Towering sea stacks loom like giants in the offshore spray. One, known as the Bell, gave the island its name. Bell Island's delicate layers of sandstone make it an anomaly in a region composed mostly of granite, as do the rich deposits of iron ore that appear as bands of red along the cliffs and turn the rocky coast a ruddy brown. The island was originally part of the territory of the Beothuk people, and later used as a seasonal home or stocking point for sailors, anglers, and pirates. But it seems that the island never supported a permanent settlement until the early 1700s, when European farmers and fishermen arrived to put down roots and raise their families. Its population slowly grew until the 1890s, when the establishment of a Canadian iron mine brought exponential growth, and with that, by the 1910s, a ferry, a tramline, and even electricity, a rare luxury in Newfoundland even decades later. By the 1930s, Bell Island was home to over 6,000 souls, making it the second largest in population in the Dominion of Newfoundland. And all of those people from different countries and backgrounds brought their stories with them. Like so many communities across Canada, Bell Island has its share of boogeymen and things that go bump in the night. Parents would often warn their children about characters like the Boo Man, Old Bloody Bones, The Man in Black, and The Woman in White, who would hide in a well or a local stream, ready to capture any child who wandered too close. They would also sneak into bedrooms and carry away the little boys and girls who didn't behave. Neighbors would share stories about how they met the devil while out walking or hitchhiking, that they could tell by his glowing eyes and sometimes his cloven hooves. There were even tales of a so-called Catman, a figure dressed in black with springs on his heels who bounded across the rooftops at night. 
Listeners will probably recognize the universality of these tales, especially the so-called boogeyman who exists everywhere from the busiest city street to the loneliest country road. The Catman is likely inspired by the far more famous Spring-Heeled Jack of Victorian England. The fairies of Belle Island, on the other hand, are a little more intriguing. Their vagaries, their tendency to dance back and forth between benevolent partiers and malevolent punishers, and their general description as short beans with wrinkled faces and red caps on their heads are similar to the fairies of Europe. What makes them special is that they're tied to specific locations on Bell Island, namely Butler's Marsh. The Bell Island Hag, as she has come to be called, goes one step further. The world is full of so-called white ladies, female ghosts with stories full of loss, betrayal, suicide, and murder. Some are so consumed by their anger that they become vengeful spirits who lure and attack their unsuspecting victims. The Bell Island Hag is reminiscent of these folktales, but it's her tragic backstory, steeped in regional history and local folklore, that makes her unique to Bell Island. In fact, there are at least two proposed origin stories for the Bell Island Hag. Here's one of them. The iron mines on Bell Island ran for over 70 years, from 1895 to 1966. And for much of that time, Germany was one of their best customers. The German sailors who worked the transport ships would often come ashore to spend their time in the island's dance halls and bars and mingle with the locals. That all changed during the First and Second World Wars, when the Germans became the enemy and the iron that they so often purchased was now sent to Nova Scotia as a resource for war. One evening, around 1942, a young woman left one of the stately houses on the island and began her journey home. She worked as a housekeeper for one of the many affluent families on Bell Island, but she lived across the water in Upper Island Cove, near Carboneer. So every night she would walk to the docks and take a ferry across Conception Bay. As she traveled down the road, the moon lighting her way, she heard a familiar voice out by the water, but she couldn't quite place it. She stepped off the road and walked toward the sound, and soon she saw a group of men hiking along the shoreline, carrying boxes and bags full of food and jugs full of water. They stopped and smiled awkwardly as she approached, but one of the men looked nervous. She studied his face, and suddenly she recognized him as a German sailor. In the years before the war, the two of them had spent more than a few nights drinking, dancing, and laughing at a hall in Wabana, but now Germans were banned from the island. How did he get here, and who were all these men? The realization sent a chill down her spine. German submarines had been prowling the bay, and the merchant sailor she once knew was now part of the Kriegsmarine, the German navy. The goods he carried were intended for the rest of his crew who were submerged in their U-boat somewhere offshore. The enemy had come to the island under the cover of darkness to resupply. The two closest men put down their boxes and moved slowly toward her. The man she recognized put a finger to his lips and shook his head. She turned and ran. She heard their supplies crash to the ground behind her as the men gave chase. They pursued her up the hill, across an open field, and to a stand of trees. 
She hoped that the trees would be enough to block their vision for a moment, giving her an opportunity to sprint to the houses on the horizon, but she didn't realize that a swamp lay just beyond. She slipped and tumbled. Moments later, they descended upon her. She used her final breaths to scream. Though she saw light appear in the distant windows, no one came to help. Their superstitions kept them away. The people of Dobbin's Garden believed that her cries were the work of the fairies trying to lure them to the swamp. Her body was never found. Now, that's one version of the story. Another, set before the war, tells us that the unfortunate woman was killed not by people, but by fairies. Either way, the rest of the story remains the same. A few months after her murder, a man was tending to his crops in Dobbin's garden when he was suddenly overcome by a terrible and paralyzing smell, often described as, quote, an outhouse mixed with rotten eggs, end quote. The story unfolds in a similar fashion to the one you heard earlier. He turned to see a woman dressed in white just before the smell overwhelmed him and sent him tumbling to the ground. Lying in the field, paralyzed, he watched as the woman dropped to all fours, her white garments turned gray, and her flesh peeled from her body. At the same time he began to lose consciousness, he felt her crawl over his body and heard her speak these words. No one came to help me, and now no one will come to help you. Taste what I tasted, smell what I smelled. He woke up some time later, surrounded by concerned neighbors, and with the island's doctor helping him to his feet. To his surprise, he was completely unharmed, but the smell, her smell, clung to his body. So much so, that he burned his clothes and scrubbed his skin raw, but the stench still lingered for weeks after. In the years since, according to some accounts, at least nine others, all men, have had the exact same experience, describing the same terrible smell and the same horrifying sight. It's said that she still haunts Dobbin's garden today as a restless spirit, angered that she was betrayed by her friend and by the community, and eternally avenging a violent and undignified death. That, at least, is the story. It was pieced together by Henry Crane, a prominent member of the Bell Island community who spent some time visiting older residents and recording their stories. As he went from person to person, he quickly learned that the story of The Ghost of Dobbin's Garden, as many called it, was a crowd favorite. From there, the story was incorporated into a play that is regularly produced by the island's tourism association that showcases no less than 11 local ghosts. Eventually, the story caught the attention of the producers of the Creepy Canada TV show, which covered one version of the story in 2003 and changed the name from The Ghost of Dobbin's Garden to the arguably more compelling Bell Island Hag. Later, some storytellers went one step further, naming her the Bell Island Swamp Hag. Around 2014, Canada Post selected The Ghost of Dobbin's Garden to be part of their third and final set of the popular Haunted Canada series of stamps. It seems that they decided to follow Creepy Canada's lead and officially named the entity the Bell Island Hag, reportedly to give the story a stronger sense of place. 
The resulting publicity made the ghost of Dobbins Garden, or the Hag if you prefer, one of Canada's most celebrated spirits. But that popularity has caused some confusion. She is sometimes confused with the Old Hag, a term used in Newfoundland and elsewhere for sleep paralysis. Check out my episode on that phenomenon if you haven't already. She is also sometimes conflated with the aforementioned Woman in White, a different mysterious figure that some Belle Island parents routinely invoked to convince their children to come home before dark. Strangely, for a short time in the 20th century, that figure may have been more than legend. According to some interviews, there were times between the mid-1940s and the early 1960s when, over the course of a few weeks, someone in the community would dress up as the woman in white and wander the island, causing a bit of a sensation. Rumors swirled that the woman in white was actually a man who, quote, used to hang out on dark, lonely roads and attack some poor chap who happened along, end quote. Some said that he would look through the windows or spy on people from the shadows. Others claimed that he wore a white blanket over his head and carried either a rifle or, quote, an axe, knife, and other tools to kill you and chop off your head, end quote. One informant told an interviewer, quote, Of all the frightening figures, this one scared me the most, end quote. Who was the culprit? Well, no one knows. One day, the sightings just suddenly stopped. So what happened? Did he just decide to stop? Did he move away? Or did he, perhaps, have an encounter of his own one dark night by the swamp? The mystery was never solved, and we're left to speculate on the woman in white's identity, their motivation, and their fate. And what about the swamp hag? Are the stories true? Was she a real person? The truth is, we're not sure. No one has been able to find any record of the woman's existence, let alone a report of a serving girl or housekeeper going missing on Bell Island. But that's not really surprising. As I noted in my Newfoundland Fairies episode, there have been many stories of people going missing over the years, but very few official reports. The part about German submarines being in the area is verifiably true, however. Bell Island's iron was an important strategic resource during the war, with their ore processing and shipping center providing much-needed iron to Canada's steel mills. The Germans wanted to stop the supply, so in a series of two deadly strikes, one on September 5th, another on November 2nd, 1942, German U-boats torpedoed four merchant ships and destroyed the island's pier, resulting in the loss of 70 men and thousands of tons of valuable ore. Soldiers and civilians alike cared for the wounded and buried the dead, resulting in the largest funeral in the history of the island. The two strikes made Bell Island one of just a handful of North American locations that were directly attacked by German forces. The attacks are considered a national historic event by the government of Canada, and their impact still resonates today. Whether you believe that the Swamp Hag is real, or just another not-so-urban legend, the story of how she recognized a German sailor and was murdered in cold blood speaks to what many Bell Islanders would have been feeling after the attacks. Feelings of betrayal, sadness, and anger that a former friend would attack their home and kill their people. 
If we embrace the alternate story and lay the blame on malevolent fairies, there are still important lessons being conveyed. That the world can be a dangerous place. That we must remain vigilant in our communities and not turn a blind eye to others in need. That we can't let our fears, superstitions, or traditions keep us from doing what is right. And that our failure to act will often come back to haunt us, one way or another. That's it for this episode. Thank you so much for listening, and for joining me in becoming part of a Canadian folk tradition. Now that you know the story, share it. And remember to stay out of swamps, bogs, marshes, and mires. You never know what you might see, or what you might smell. Fireside Canada is written and recorded by me, David Williams, with editing by Joe Fish and sound design by Robin Edgar. Stephanie Phillips is our showrunner. Mary Jubrin is our digital editor. Diana Key is our business manager. Jordan Heath-Rawlings is our executive producer. If you enjoyed this episode, please consider giving this podcast a positive review. If you want to help even further, you can provide story ideas and more through my website. Every little bit helps to keep the fire burning and the library of legends growing. Learn more at firesidecanada.ca.